thrusters won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the range point four. This is control. Be reasonable. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Sits and sieves, captains and commanders, you're tuned to the guard frequency, and as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 157 of the Best Damn Space Sim Podcast Ever, and was recorded on Friday, February 24th, and made available for download Tuesday, February 28th, over at guardfrequency.com. I'm Ostron. I'm Jeff. And I'm Ken Shadow. And filling in for Henry in the audio booth is our resident opinionated ignorant slut, Tony. I mean, uh, legal expert. Sorry. Hey, now, Jeff, you know, I have a few things to say about that, and I really don't think that we should <laughs> I get know you do that here. Shush. Okay. Shush. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. So what do we have this week, Ken Shadow? Attention, attention. This week's Squawk Box is a change from our normally scheduled shenanigans. Of course, we couldn't go on without mentioning the discovery by NASA of seven new exoplanets ah, in the Trappist-1 system. So we went out right to the source. Kinda. So instead of our usual squawky goodness, we're bringing you a section from our sister production, Priority One, who recently interviewed Dr. Robert Hurt of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories about this discovery. After that, we hit the flight deck and see what news from your favorite space sims has landed as we cover... A whirlwind of Star Citizen news. Oh no, wait, I meant the hurricane. What good folks at Frontier are doing about the core sector XU-PA5-O system in Elite Dangerous. And we take a proper look at Hellion, the latest space survival sim to hit the market. And finally, we tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and see what's coming through the Squawk Box. Identity with recognition codes immediately. I am a cipher, a cipher wrapped in an enigma, smothered in secret sauce. All right, everybody, welcome to another Astrometrics Report. Uh, with us in the studio once again is Dr. Robert Hurd of JPL. Hey, what's up, Doc? Hey, well, if you guys were paying attention to the news yesterday, you might have heard a little story that started going around that I'm here to talk about today. Oh, yeah? Well, what makes you so smart? How come you're such an authority, Dr. Robert Hurt, if that's your real name? <laughs> who are you and why are you so smart about this? Well, for, uh, those of us, for those of us who do, don't know yet. <laughs> so uh, it so happens that the, uh, the astronomy story of the winter, at least, if not the year, happens to come from a result that uh, is tied to NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope, which astute listeners might recall is the mission that I actually work on uh, ah. at the uh, Spitzer Science Center at Caltech, and it's the mission for which I do a lot of the science visualization work. So uh, the story that hit the press this week that I wanted to talk about uh, is the, uh, it's actually the cover story of nature this week, and it is the discovery of a planetary system with not one, not two, but seven Earth-sized worlds situated around a star in a way that um, while three of them fall within what we would traditionally call the habitable zone, uh, it, it turns out that uh, conditions are such that it's possible that depending on conditions, liquid water could exist on any or all of them. So this is just a plethora of possible Earths to play with. Wow. So now you said seven Earth-sized worlds. Correct. 
uh, can you can you define size for us? What's the size mean? Uh, size is in you know the diameter of these planets is uh, within the range of twenty five percent smaller up to about ten percent bigger than the Earth. So uh, so pretty close. Pretty close. So, you know, uh, Diameter-wise, length-wise. Now, does that tell us about the mass? Do we know about how heavy they are? Indeed. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the process. And I'll uh, let me, in fact, start off that um, uh, my involvement in this particular release is once this result came in back in November, we realized this was going to be a really, really big thing, and we pitched it to NASA yeah. headquarters as a press conference, and they absolutely eagerly jumped on it. And so for the last couple of months, my uh, colleague Tim Pyle and I have been busily putting together uh, a big package of graphics and video to go along and really help explain this result. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty deeply entrenched in this one. Wasn't on the research team uh -huh. uh, for the paper, though a couple of my colleagues at work were actually. But uh, we've, had, uh, we've had a lot of fun times getting ready for this crazy thing. And the cover of Nature, this actually happened to be my first piece of artwork that I got onto the cover of Nature. So, uh, Oh, congratulations. Personal first there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a great, it's a great looking picture. Uh, you know, for those of you on the podcast, uh, we'll have a link in our show notes to the nature cover so you can see. But it's basically the red dwarf star with the planets lined up on it. It's very cool, very slick. Uh, you'll, it's it's great, it's great, uh, great views. Check it out. But yeah, so uh, you were on, you're on the art team. You've got videos. You've got pictures. You're on the cover of Nature. Uh, what do we see? Well, I, I should say that um, when the Spitzer mission, when Spitzer first launched back in 2003. One of our dreams is that someday we would have a story, a, a press release that would come out about some Spitzer result that was uh, exciting enough it would end up not only in the New York Times, but hopefully on the cover of the New York Times above the fold. And above the fold. Today I, I went to my local Barnes & Noble and purchased today's New York Times with the Trappist One system printed above the fold. So it took it oh. took over a dozen years, but but we did it. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Well done. Persistence. Yeah. And did you walk through the Barnes and Noble just showing it to everybody going, I'm on the front of the New York Times. Did you know that I'm on the front of the New York Times? I did this. It was <laughs> tempting. Uh, it was probably more more like it was all I could do to not like start tearing up when the uh, when the the person uh, the girl at the counter actually gave me the copy. I'm like, oh. but uh, yeah, it was it was it was Forever. pretty fun. <laughs> well, yeah, and and again for those of the for those of you at home, if you've played the game Elite Dangerous, the cover of the New York Times picture, the Trappist One system is set up exactly like the planetary maps. There, it's the big sun on the left. And then little little dots, little worlds, little with individualized characteristics of you know, red, green, brown clouds. It's really gorgeous. So we'll put a link on the show notes to that too. So what was what's really cool about this is that you know there are a couple of different ways, a few different ways we have of detecting exoplanets. But by far the most prolific method is the one employed by, for instance, the Kepler mission, which we basically stare at a star and we look for tiny little repeating dips in the brightness of the star. And these dips occur whenever the planet interposes itself between us and the star. If, it, if the system happens to be you know, just in the right alignment, which most of them won't be. But you know there are a lot of stars out there, and so if you look at enough of them, occasionally you'll find some where the planetary system is lined up just right. Now, the TRAPPIST-1 system was actually first announced last year in a, a big news release uh, because of the ground-based TRAPPIST telescope that had discovered it, which was studying nearby 
small, uh, ultra-cool dwarf stars. These are M dwarf stars that are um, they're, they're basically about as small as you can get and actually still be a, a star, still be able to create fusion. But these are interesting because they are actually very, very numerous. And the planets, if they existed around such stars, would tend to be in very close orbits, which means they would orbit repeatedly and rapidly, which means they would transit a lot, and which means they'd be basically a lot easier to detect. So when the TRAPPIST-1 system was first discovered, it was uh, known to have at least three planets. And the, uh, but because of the, the, the cadence of ground observation, what they really needed is a much longer set of observations in order to uh, really come up with sort of the Rosetta Stone for the transits and make sure they, they knew how many were there. Um, so uh, the Spitzer mission, which entered its final sort of Spitzer Beyond phase this, uh, uh, this past fall, its actual first project in the uh, Spitzer Beyond mission, which was sort of our final uh, stint of observations that will lead up to hopefully the launch of James Webb Space Telescope and even overlap with that for a while, was to spend uh, over 20 days staring at the TRAPPIST-1 system, hopefully to find out a little bit more about the three or maybe four planets that, that might end up being there. Well, uh, what happened, what Spitzer saw, was just a whole forest of little dips in light uh, at, separated by you know a day or less over and over and over again. And it, by having such a long, sort of unbroken uh, data set, except for the occasional data downlinks to Earth, it was actually enough data to sit down and disentangle and figure out that the, uh, the, the transits were coming from a total of seven different planets in the system. Now, the uh, depth of the, uh, uh, the dip, you know, the, the amount of light reduction, which in this case is for exoplanets, these reductions are pretty huge. They, they were up to like over 2% of the light of the star occurred because the star itself is really small. It's only a little bit bigger than the planet Jupiter. And then the planets passing in front of it are all about the size of the Earth. So because you basically, when you measure the dip, the, uh, the amount of light that gets reduced, you can then calculate immediately exactly how big the planets are. And so, you know, the, the deeper the dip, the bigger the planet. And then you sort of do the math and you sort of figure it out. By the timing of how frequently they pass in front of the star, you know the period of the orbit. And then from the, the, the star and the period, you can figure out how far away the planet is, which then tells you how much light, how much energy comes from the star and falls on the planet, which tells you something about its uh, potential for habitability. Now, the cool extra special sauce that Spitzer brought to the mix was because uh, Spitzer is incredibly sensitive to the light from uh, from small uh, uh, ultra cool red dwarfs, uh, which actually put out most of their light in the infrared, not the visible part of the spectrum. That's where Spitzer actually works. Uh, Spitzer was so precise in its observations that not only was it able to detect the timing of the transits as the planet passed in front of the star, but slight variations in the timing where they showed up a little early or a little late, uh, just enough that you could then use that information, fold it into another set of calculations, and start to estimate what the actual masses of the planets are. Now, this is something that is uh, exciting because this is something you don't normally yeah. get to do. Right. Yeah, because the, the distance is involved and you basically use up all your observational data just getting the size of the planet lengthwise. Uh, you know the, the the wiggles that the gravitational forces are usually drowned out in that because of the distances involved. Exactly, but not here. You know, not here. So often, you know, the exoplanet transiting systems we find only have you know one or two or maybe three planets, and they tend to be a lot more 
distantly spaced from one another. So the actual gravitational tugs on them are going to be very, very subtle, and any timing variations will be so slight. You know, you'd literally need years of observations yeah. to start to right. figure that out instead of you know days, which we got from Spitzer. So as a result, not only do we have this population of planets with their, their, uh, the size of their orbits and their distances and their radiuses. We also know roughly what their masses are, which then when you combine the size with the mass, you get a sense of a density. And this becomes our first measurement of what the composition might be. It's a very rough estimate, but you can look at the difference between a planet that has a higher density of the Earth versus a lower density and start to make some arguments about what might happen in terms of composition. If it has a lower density, for instance, it might have a much higher fraction of things like water on its surface. Mm -hmm. Water being a lot less massive you know, per unit volume than you know, rocks. So, uh, so you know, digging into that story and going down the planets, which are very creatively named Trappist 1, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H, uh, because that's how we name ah. things in astronomy. Uh, we sort of went through the system and then, in fact, one of the things that uh, Tim Pyle and I did gearing up for this is uh, uh, head up discussing with scientists how it is we wanted to visualize each of these planets to give a, uh, a sort of a plausible model, far from unique model, but, but maybe one plausible model of what each planet could be given the conditions that we know. So um, working very closely with uh, Michael Guillon, who is the uh, principal investigator at the University of Liege in Belgium, and uh, uh, his, uh, uh, some of his co-authors, including uh, Sean Carey at the Spitzer Science Center, who's the, the manager of the Spitzer Project, who's also on the paper, we sort of went through and we, we identified a set of sort of uh, um, imagined types of planets you could have. Uh, for the innermost planet, we modeled it roughly on, say, the, the Jupiter's moon Io, which is very volcanic, uh, subject to tidal mm -hmm. forces. The Moving out to sea was more of a rocky world uh, that has a very small ice cap potentially on the backside, and I'll, I'll get back to that. Uh, D, E, F all had varying amounts of water. G was done as a, like a mini Neptune, and H is an ice ball. Now, the thing that's kind of cool about this system is because these planets are so close to their star, the tidal forces from the star are actually going to be very strong and very likely strong enough to lock the planets in a way that they will always face the star during their orbit, the, the same way the moon always presents wow. the same face to the Earth. Mm -hmm. So by being tidally locked, it actually changes the rule book entirely on what habitable means. Right? Uh, the classic definition of a habitable zone is how far away from the star could you put a planet like the Earth and expect water to uh, be able to be liquid on its surface? And that's assuming that the planet is spinning on its axis and its temperature is more or less you know, equilibriated around the whole planet. But if you have a tidally locked planet, one side is always going to face the star and the other side is always going to be away from it. So these planets are actually going to have a much larger temperature gradient running from the sun side to the night side than anything that we see in our inner solar system, really. Back in the day, they actually thought Mercury was tidally locked. It turns out it actually does rotate slowly uh, with respect to its orbit. So as a result, if the uh, surface conditions are right, if, if the, there's enough of the right volatiles on these planets, it's actually possible to construct a scenario that liquid water could exist on any or all of these, just you know, in, with, with the right arrangements. So we, we right. sort of came up with a, a panoply of visualizations for this that showed uh, the, the possibility of an ice cap on the back of the, uh, the, the, the close-in world sea. 
Uh, on the D world, we came up with a uh, what had kind of been dubbed an eyeball planet, where you sort of have a dry day side under the, the, the heat of the sun, a cold icy night side, and right around the terminator of the planet, dividing night from day, a little bit of transition where the ice can melt and maybe pool into water before it evaporates and you know snows back out on the night side. Right. Uh, ENF both had relatively low densities. The the mass measurements for them are actually uh, quite low, uh, even though their diameter is very close to the size of the Earth. And so uh, the model for that became two worlds that could have you know huge oceans like you know tens hundreds of kilometers thick perhaps of of liquid water. So we showed those as basically big balls of water with ice caps. Uh, G being the largest one, uh, potentially could have the densest atmosphere, so it was shown more as a sort of a tiny analog of Neptune. And H being the furthest out, we sort of came up with sort of an ice ball modeled on Europa. So on D, E, and F, your um, those assumptions that you know it's right there in the middle, the quote Goldilocks zone. The idea would be that if there's enough of an atmosphere, whether that's constructed of gases or like you're saying for on ENF, especially liquids, there might be enough energy circulating around it. So that liquid water might exist on on all sides, but maybe some of it's covered with an ice cap on the night side. Maybe the the temperatures on on the on the tidally locked day side creep around to the backside. Maybe uh, right, right. The medium of the atmosphere. Okay, exactly. And for instance, D. So uh, so although the planet D is uh, technically too close to its star to be considered habitable. The fact is, the backside is actually going to be incredibly cold because it will never face the sun, while the day side will be very, very hot. And so the idea that there's some place intermediate, somewhere between the day and night side, where the temperature would be, you know, as they say, just right for liquid water to exist. We, we placed that in the artwork right around the, uh, the Terminator so you could kind of see the water. Uh, but you know, where it would actually be would depend a lot on how thick the atmosphere was and the airflow patterns and things like that. But it's really cool to have planets that, because of it being tidally locked, it might actually change our definition of what habitable would be. Right, right, and, and may it be habitable around that ring, around the the terminus, the terminator ring, but the rest of it might be completely uninhabitable, uh, according to what we would call human standards, anyway. Exactly. So you're saying that depending on what the measurement, what the atmospheres turn out to be, that's something that the follow-up mission might be looking at. The James Webb Telescope you were mentioning earlier, uh, from exactly okay. the uh, so uh, let me uh, actually let me I'll get to that question in a second. Let okay. me let me just say one other G whiz thing. The uh, the because the other thing about this system that's so just unspeakably cool, I think, is that the other thing is when you look at the close separations of these planets, the fact that the distances between their orbits are actually more in line with the distances between the orbits of the moons of Jupiter rather than, you know, our the planets in our system. That they are so close together that if you were actually on the surface of one of these planets, looking up at your neighboring planets as they were making their closest approaches, hmm. you would actually see your neighboring planets in some cases to be larger in the sky than we see the moon to be in our sky. Imagine being on a planet where you can look up and look at your neighboring planet and with binoculars be able to make out continents and features, wow. just even with your naked eye. That's it, serious sci-fi right there, it but is not fi. Sci-fi. It's the sci-fi <laughs> without the fi, but that's cool. And even if, uh, and if, you know, if we were there somehow and we had even just our existing level of technology, the idea that you could, you know, fly between planets in days rather than months like it takes in our system. So uh, you had it on your on your chart you had up a little while ago. Um, they were uh, distances there. So are the distance between the two closest ones 
Um, of course, that will change because they're rotating, but they're on their closest approach, they would come closer than you're saying from Earth to the moon? Or is it just that their relative size is just maybe they appear, it would appear closer than the Earth to the moon? Is it, it, they, they would, it would appear, yeah, because they're you know several times larger than the moon. Okay. But, and they're several times further apart than we are from the moon. So, but yeah, the, the proportion of their distance to their radius is such that they'd end up looking about the size of the moon in the sky. So we're talking a few a few million miles, not a few hundred million miles. Exactly, exactly. Right. So, but to, back to your question though on um, follow-up missions, right? Yeah. What Spitzer has done and what uh, uh, the, the ground-based telescopes that have been following this up on uh, um, both of the discovery and, you know, in conjunction with Spitzer data and, and, in fact, ongoing observations, because obviously this is a really cool place worth learning more about. Um, that's all about refining our size measurements and the timing measurements and our, our mass estimates. But what you really want to do is go back and examine these systems very carefully at different wavelengths of light and see if the apparent size of the planet changes a little bit. Because what you can start to do is, is actually look for hints of a little bit of the chemistry of what might be going on in the atmosphere by looking for uh, things like, say, hydrogen gas, which hydrogen will block light at certain wavelengths. And at those wavelengths, the planet might actually appear to be a little bigger if it had an envelope of hydrogen gas around it. And then at other wavelengths where the hydrogen is transparent, the planet, you'd only be the, the rocky part, the only part that would block your view. So Hubble had actually begun a, a program of exploring the innermost two planets last year where they found no evidence of, of hydrogen, which is really the only thing they can look for right now, which by finding they did not see any hydrogen envelope around them actually reinforces the idea that these are rocky worlds, not just you know gas balls or something. Uh, Hubble will continue these observations, but eventually when the James Webb Space Telescope launches, uh, it will actually be very well suited to start to look at some of the hints of chemistry in these atmospheres and maybe give us a hint of some of the composition. And then, you know, if we can start pointing out at anything, like either ruling out certain molecule species or, or, or finding certain ones, then we can really start to say more about what these planets could actually be like. We're expecting to find some sort of gas envelope around at least the three in the middle. That would be the expectation because of the temperatures and the distances. Yes. So we're just wondering what, might, what those might be. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, there, I mean, there are so many questions, and uh, in, in part, some of it comes down to simply, um, uh, does it have the right composition? Does it have the right, di did the right things get delivered to these planets when they formed? You know, right. were there, did, was there mm -hmm. cometary, cometary bombardment that delivered volatiles or, or something else, right? Uh, uh, did they form elsewhere in the system and migrate in and sweep up material as they came in? You know, there's, there's so much we don't know right. about their formation and the process that, uh, that Again, any little piece of information, we can start to rule out lots and lots of things and converge on more likely mm -hmm. models of what they could be. Cool. And I see we have a new a new uh, picture up on our screen here. The, uh, those of you who visit us in Las Vegas would remember Dr. Hertz's uh, uh, travel plans, uh, uh, travel agency uh, posters. And so we've got he's he's created another one uh, here for for tra for Trappist One. Well, I wish I could. I, I so. can't take personal credit for this. This is part of the uh, JPL. No? Uh, JPL actually has a uh, a separate group of really talented artists who work on illustrating a lot of the science results and the exoplanet results coming mm -hmm. out of JPL in general. And so uh, they've 
developed this entire series of exoplanet travel posters that have been coming out over the years. So uh, I actually did work closely with the art team on this. Uh, they, uh, we, some of the teleconferences we had with Mikel Guillaume and, and the other scientists, uh, we were all part of that conversation because in part we wanted to make sure that the graphics that JPL were developing were, were going to be consistent with the graphics that were coming out of the Spitzer Science Center and that you know, we were all telling the same story. But they came up with a very, very evocative um, illustration for this system that really sells the idea of of a planetary system with nearby neighbors that are just you know just inviting you to planet hop from one world to the next. And they added in a little bit of uh, they added in a little bit of uh, Star Trek font just to make it extra on target. But imagine if you know uh, this is totally going into the realm of fantasy land but you know you, you've said that these objects would be pretty big in the night sky um, if you were standing on the surface of somebody in the middle for instance um, just imagine if there was life on several of these planets and you could actually look up and see the evidence of other civilizations on another planet and you would just take it for granted I mean the the idea of that is so sci-fi and so cool that it's just it really captures your imagination. Yeah, it really is. The, uh, the fact that, for instance, it took uh, Galileo observing the phases of Venus and of Mercury uh, to, to start to develop observational support for the Copernican system, that there was the, the idea that when we look at our planets, we just see dots of light. But, it, but when Galileo could say, hey, look, Venus becomes a crescent. You know, we never, we only see it fully illuminated when it's tiny because it's on the other side of the sun when it's uh, uh, back there. And, and geometrically, you could look at that and all of a sudden you say, oh, yeah, I, I see how that works by holding a, you know, a ball up around a, a, a candlelight, right? But if you were on a system like this, you'd look up and you would totally get it. Like, oh, yeah, those are other balls inside. And, and then I have other planets, you know, that have larger orbits than us and they're on the outside. And, you know, it'd just be a daily thing that you would just know. There was a, a book by Isaac Asimov, I think it's called Nightfall. And it's the opposite of this. It's a planetary system with multiple suns and one inhabited planet. And there's it never it never goes night. And it basically, uh, except like in one, once every few hundred or thousand years or whatever, and the whole world burns like civilization just falls because no one's ever seen the night sky before and it drives everybody insane and so it's the it, there's a story of these scientists that are going hey we're about to have another one of these you know events wonder what's going on and these scientists who look up in the sky and go wait a minute those are stars and those stars pr produce light and oh they're all going to be on this side over here and that means there's not going to be any light from them that's going to be weird. We got to do something about that. And so you have that perspective of always knowing that there's other planets or always not even understanding that the stars are stars. I mean, it's just, it is mind, kind of mind-boggling. And someone should write yeah. this story now. And we need another yeah. Asimov to write the, the opposite story. Well, there's, there's so many interesting things about this system that you could really latch on to tell the story, one of which is the fact that this is such a small, uh, dim star that... Um, you know, most of the energy that heats the planets is actually coming in the infrared part of the spectrum. Uh, from a visible light point of view, it actually would be very, very faint light on these planets, even on the day side. By our eyes, used to the illumination we get under the sun, uh, we would see it as very, very faint. Uh, you know, the, the color of the light we calculated would have the, the, the look of, say, a very low wattage light bulb. But, you know, it's like if the star, if our sun were a really low wattage light bulb, really dark, <laughs> dimly illuminated and kind of that warm orangish salmon 
kind of tone to it. That's what the day sides of these planets would be like. But in the same sense that you wouldn't, with our eyes, you wouldn't see much light, you would feel much more heat coming off the sun. It would be, it would be a very, very different sensation. And of course, if you were evolved on these planets, native creatures, odds are what they called visible light would be completely different than what we called visible. They would probably have eyes that are adapted to see infrared, and it would, they would have a whole different experience. I'm sensing kind of a Superman-Predator hybrid here, you know, with the, with the heat <laughs> vision, but he's around a red star. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm getting here. So we, could, we should probably avoid that system for the near future. We should just stay back. I, I, I did. I did pitch the idea that uh, look, you've got like you know potentially habitable planet, uh, maybe a big ice cap on back that you could have a little ice city on, red star. Yeah, this could yeah. be Krypton's home system. Yeah, you know, could close be. enough that the the the, the 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 spaceship could probably get to Earth without too much trouble. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't. Yeah, you need it. You need I'm, like I'm a, hearing the John Williams score in my head right now. I'm, I'm thinking uh, <laughs> you're right. I'm thinking you're right. This this is definitely a possibility. And you said one of them was you know the close to one end that might have just the terminus. Like that that could be it because it's real delicate. You know, like there could have been a yep. cataclysm of some kind that could have upset the balance. Yeah, I think I think we found it. I think we found Krypton. This is probably what it is. <laughs> if we're lucky, it's not the predator world with the infrared vision. That could be bad. Yeah. Hey, so can I ask a dumb question? Uh, there are no dumb questions. Ah, oh, see. We'll see about yeah, that. Yeah, you fell into the trap. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't heard it yet. Um, so where's where's Trappist One A? Oh, uh, that's okay. That isn't a dumb question. That, uh, the only thing that's dumb about that question is how dumb astronomers are and how we name things. Trappist right. 1A is the actual name of the star. Oh. Because in historically, when we would name stars in the sky, we would see one point of light and we would give it a name. Then with right. powerful telescopes, we might split light and realize, oh, there's actually one or two or three stars, like a double star. And then when we realized that what we called a star was really a double star, then we started saying it's like, well, that's Alpha Centauri A and B, or Sirius A and B. And so we started to use letters to split up the things that we didn't notice with our eye when we looked at it. And right. for some completely incomprehensible reason to me, when we first started discovering exoplanets, we extended the nomenclature for naming stars to exoplanets. And so okay. there are actually some crazy situations where we have some systems where maybe we have we have double stars so you have i, I forget the, the name of the particular examples but there are some where we know it's a double star so those two stars are something a and something b and then the first exoplanet is something c and right. whereas another system the b isn't a star it's an exoplanet so yeah astronomers are really notoriously bad at nomenclature <laughs> they, this is not star trek at all i'm disappointed well yeah because it should be trappist one it should be trappist one one right and then Trappist one, two, but Roman numerals one yeah. and yeah. two. <laughs> Star Trek yeah. had it right, except now we can't call yeah. it. So now we can't do M class anymore because we've got the the planet with the M class is only in the strip on the Terminator. So that would be like a like yeah. a, a lowercase M class or like a, a L class. I don't know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, back during the back during the. Um, uh, NASA's, uh, sorry, uh, Star Trek's 50th anniversary, uh, you know, uh, JPL was actually involved in uh, trying to do some things to, to reference that. You know, we, we, you know, Spitzer, we actually put out sort of the, the Enterprise Nebula picture. But yeah. one of the things that JPL did is they were trying to go through our catalog of exoplanets and apply Star Trek 
nomenclatures to them. And you know, the, the class L, uh, demon class, class mm -hmm. M. But it turned out, it, it, it was a very, very dubious enterprise, if you will, because it, it, it's so hard. The way it was so nice and neat of this is habitable and this is almost habitable, right? We don't, one, have enough information, and uh, two, it, it, even the whole question becomes like weird. Like, well, okay, part of this planet has a really ridiculously hot region, and part of it is ridiculously cold, part of it is just right. What is the class of the planet if it's all of them, you know, just depending on where you are physically on it? So, nature is far more tedious and complicated when it comes to these things than, uh, than our nomenclatures support, I'm afraid. It's like they resist putting themselves in a neat little boxes for us to put on. Uh, uh, you know, I just wish the nature would be a little more organized, please. I mean, that'd be nice. Uh, and nice. I also wish astronomers would start naming things with a little more forward thinkingness to their, their, uh, how they start choosing their. Because then, of course, years later, we have to come back and fix it all. And it results in things like, uh, yeah, Pluto really shouldn't have been called a planet, but now we have to suffer a lot of grief over that. So, <laughs> Oh, dude, don't open that box. Uh, not here. Not here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Robert Hurd, thanks for coming on board with us and sharing another Astrometrics report and over this really exciting development. And uh, we'll have you back on for sure the next time you guys discover something completely mind-blowing like, like this. Absolutely. And, and as, as a parting thought, uh, while I, I, there aren't necessarily a lot of Star Trek worlds we can connect to this, I, if any of your viewers have watched that other show that Joss Whedon did, thinking about a, a solar system yep. that humanity colonizes with several habitable planets that you could zip around from one to another in your Firefly class ship. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you can't we, take we the sky have, from me. Can't take the sky from me. We, 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 from me. we, we may have discovered the verse. We may so. have it. We may have it right here. It's got to have some neighbors. It's got some close neighbors with other planets. But yeah, we may have this. Mm. Is, this, yeah. Is, this is definitely a candidate. Uh, so we do have one quick community question that's a really good one that I'd, I'd like to, you to have a crack at before we go. Uh, James Sillette on Facebook has asked, my only question is, what are the chances that there is life and how long will it take to find out? So this is, of course, the question we always are curious about as astronomers because deep down what we're really trying to do is answer a much deeper question, which is, you know, how common is life in the universe? Now, it's a really difficult thing to get at, especially when starting off, we really know still so little about these planets. But to specifically address life in this system, uh, one thing that's interesting about the TRAPPIST-1 star is that it's actually relatively young. It's only about 500 million years old. Now, that sounds old, but, you know, the sun is four and a half billion years old. So, you know, even if we could imagine one of these planets has, has water and the conditions that are right for life and, and life has arisen, if we look back in the history of our own Earth, that actually is, you know, pretty much back at the origins of life on our own planet. So if there were life forms here, it likely would be, you know, very primitive, you know, bacteria at best, you, uh, more like, you know, diatoms or some of uh, analogs to some of the very, very simplest uh, uh, forms in our system. Now, that that's not uninteresting in the slightest, though, because I guess the biggest question about life in the universe is simply, is, is life something that happens pretty much every time you get the right mix of chemicals and water and temperature? Is it just something that, that, that because of the nature of carbon chemistry, it will just naturally arise? Or does it only arise in one out of 10 systems, one out of 100, or one out of a million, or one out of a trillion, right? Uh, we, have, we have a sample of one. And until we can find that second sample, and if we find that second sample, 
then that will tell us so much about how common life could be. It's one of the reasons why we're also so interested in looking for any hints of life that might exist at other planets in, the, in our own solar system, on, on Mars or in, you know, in Europa, right? If, if we could find that life independently arose twice in our own solar system, that would really give us a lot of confidence that in, in pretty much any planet that, that you get the liquid water and the, so the right mix of chemicals that you'd, you'd get life too. So, but really to start answering that, it's going to take this next generation of telescopes like James Webb to basically at least start answering some of the questions about what is in the atmospheric composition, what, uh, you know, do they have atmospheres, is it all hidden under clouds, and once we can really start to characterize a little bit of what's going on on the surface of these worlds, then we can start to then ask the next question, are there any tracers that we could associate with processes that we might associate with life, like, you know, is there an abnormally large amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. That's something on our own planet. If you took away all the life, then the oxygen on our planet would actually turn into rust and oxidize things very quickly. And then you, you would no longer, you'd have a nitrogen atmosphere. You really wouldn't have much oxygen. So, so there are ways we can get at the question, but they're, they're still, still a ways off. All right. Thanks, Dr. Hurt, for joining us for another Astrometrics Report. And now we'll open up hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. 175 Port Bay, hands on approach, checkers green, call the ball. Don't get taken home with me. Our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for February 24th, 2017, $143.8 million, up about 690000 1.752 million registered accounts, up about 5800 1.223 million ships in the UEE fleet, up about 6200 Continuing in their coverage of the features put out for 2.6.1, this week's Around the Verse featured a section on the details of Spectrum, the new community interaction suite. They first covered a brief history of community software, beginning with the basic forums and chat role that were introduced for the 2012 campaign. Spectrum initially began as a simple upgrade to the forum engine that would have been able to support 30,000 orgs. However, Chris Roberts being the guy that he is, he said things needed to be bigger. The team considered multiple moderating interaction apps such as Discord, Reddit, and Stack Overflow, and some others, and then began working on getting the application to work through hurdles such as managing the player presence piece across the client, the browser, and the mobile implementations. Eventually, they plan to have Spectrum replace all of the community features of the website. As we mentioned last week, SIG has another ship rolling out for purchase. The Anvil Hurricane! Featuring a delta-shaped vertical profile and a thin silhouette head-on, the ship is designed to be a glass cannon fighter. The ship is just over 22 meters long and about the same size as a Hornet and slightly larger than a Buccaneer. Based on the specs, it's not clear that Hurricane represents a significant advantage in firepower. It matches the Hornet's size 4 gun mounts and actually beats it with the missile pylon mounts. Then things get murky. The Hornet features a size 2 unmanned turret, but the Hurricane has a size 3 manned one. That's four more guns to bring to bear, but only if you can find someone else to use them. Whether that is a better or worse option is sure to ignite debate amongst fans of either ship. We should note that there are discrepancies between the written description of the pylon and the size 4 gun mount types and the listed specifications. These will probably be cleared up in a forthcoming Q&A. The glass feature is obvious, however. 
featuring only two S1 shields, a TR2 engine versus a Hornet's TR4, and the same number of maneuvering thrusters but one size smaller, this ship is not built to take a beating or weave in and out of a furball. The narrative suggests that the ship is for pilots who want to remain aware of how the fight is going around them and decide when and where to strike. With modern SIG, it's no longer a simple case of do you want the ship at X price, of course. The base price is $160, but that's only if you drop real money on it. Melters will need to shell out $175. Yes, Jeff, we know. That's not the only thing you can grab during the sale, however. There is a tortoise and hurricane sale where you can pick up the hurricane and the terrapin. For those who don't recall, the Terrapin is the armored explorer ship that won on concept sale a few months ago. That lovely pair will cost you $320 of real money. Finally, for those of us who got their U.S. tax to return money and just can't figure out what to do with it, you can drop $1,250 on the Anvil Hammer Package, including the Super Hornet, Gladiator, Terrapin, Hurricane, Carrick Explorer, and the Crucible Repair Ship. So yeah, the Hurricane definitely has more guns than the Hornet just out of the box, but four of them are in a manned turret. So, so yeah, they SIG is really kind of weird about what a manned turret means, and they're also really weird about what it means in the longer term. So there are certain ships that have manned turrets, or, or actually in their previous models had manned turrets, that were actually by default slaved to the pilot, and uh, only became manned turrets when someone got into them. So the, the, the examples here are the Gladiator and the Cutlass. The Cutlass is, the, the midterm rework is not so manned anymore. But at the time it was, if you got into the turret, it worked like a manned turret. If nobody got in the turret, it just slaved itself to the pilot. So you, they worked just like the Hornet's ball turret. So how this works on this ship will all depend on just whatever SIG feels like is appropriate for balancing, I think. It, there's also a bit of a, I guess, internal argument, depending on who you talk to, about whether the other ships that have manned turrets, whether they're operating as attended too. Because depending on who you talk to in SIG, oh, you're going to have to buy a module to make that turret work. And then some people are like, no, well, that's just because the ships are in their last model phase. And whenever we update them, then the turret will work again, you know, with the pilot. So even if they answer it for the hurricane, I think it's still an open question until this game actually gets released. Which still calls into question the status of this fighter as a, you know, an overwhelming firepower vehicle. Because as you were suggesting, if the turrets can work independent of whether there's somebody in them, well, then... Okay, so let me, let me, let me also back, the, back that up in that you can replace the turret. So like, for instance, the ball turret in the Hornet in theory, you'll be able to take that out and replace that with a big gun. You can actually replace the turret that is currently in the Cutlass with a flash fire mount and then put like a huge gun on it. So in theory, for all these guns, all these ships with turrets, you're going to be able to put in a non-manned big gun or a non-manned turret later anyway. So the size of the turret will matter in the long run, regardless of whether it's manned or not. Not only that, but with its weak shield and uh, maneuverability, I'll be taking out its guns first before I kill it anyway with my with my <laughs> Hornet. So did you get a chance to play around with Spectrum at all? I played with a little bit. I wish it was a little more sticky. Like, uh, I think the community hub could use some spectrification too, I think. And I'm wondering what they're going to do with all the old form content. I assume it's all going to just get archived or something like that and no one will ever look at it again. <laughs> 
but I would rather that stuff kind of get ported forward if possible. Our star citizen community question, what do you think of Spectrum? Do you think the hurricane can do what SIG claims? Let us know in our usual channels. Details coming up. The recent announcement of the discovery of the TRAPPIST-1 system is exciting, says CEO of Frontier, David Braben. And so say we all, Dave. As expected these days with any galactic announcements made, the first thing the players of Elite Dangerous did was, you guessed it, they went to try to find the TRAPPIST-1 system. Unfortunately, they were left a little disappointed. Not because the system wasn't anything like what had been discovered, but because it wasn't there at all. Frontier not being the kind of company to let a little thing like the makeup of the galaxy win one over on them, they promptly issued a statement. Essentially, the TRAPPIST-1 system has a very faint M-class star, an M8 to be precise, just barely visible even with Hubble. Because of this, the system itself wasn't on any star catalogs and thus not put in the game. Since this means that any M-class star outside the 40 light-years isn't visible, the Elite Dangerous procedural engine known as Stellar Forge does some very fancy calculations with the remaining available mass of the galaxy and figures out where those too faint-to-see stars are likely to be. Coincidentally, in almost pretty much the same place as TRAPPIST-1, a system was generated in the Stellar Forge that was a brown dwarf. As any decent astronomer will tell you, that's only a fraction smaller than the M8. Even better, the Stellar Forge also generated appropriate plants for the system, and it was decided that seven terrestrial worlds was the most likely. Yep, that's right, folks. Elite's Stellar Forge effectively predicted its existence. You can even visit the system yourself. Its system, Corsis Sextor XU-P A5-0. But you'll need to be quick, because Stellar Forge got it so damn near close, Frontier are going to change the star class and rename the system to TRAPPIST-1. And this is going to go live in Beta 2 of the Commanders. Well, that's Yeah, cool well, this was, uh, when I, we did the interview for Priority 1 with Dr. Hurt, he was extremely excited because everything that they saw from data they could translate more or less to physical real world things and then come to see in this game the mathematical modeling that they had done for stellar forge effectively predicted the system where it was going to be and even down to the number of planets now that's just freaky that's just crazy freaky and the game engine predicted that some of the planets would have moons now, our observations are not yet fine enough to effectively rule out moons, I don't think, especially if they're small. So Frontiers basically said, eh, we're going to keep some of them. We might we might put some moons in there just for fun and see what happens. So it was just very, very uh, exciting for me as an elite player to go. They are modeling things so closely and so well mathematically that we only had to make a little tiny adjustment to make it fit reality. I thought that was just amazingly cool. Yeah, it is impressive that the mathematical model is sophisticated enough to get it that close. I don't know if they had the, the tilt right, the ecli- the plane of the ecliptic. They're going to have to adjust that, too, to make sure the plane of the ecliptic in uh, the TRAPPIST-1 system matches Earth. So, you know, that it gets pointed edge on at the sun. They might have to do that manually as well. I don't know if they predicted that effectively. But, man, just they were a light year off, like half a star class short, and uh, the game predicted some extra moons that we haven't seen yet, but they could still be there. It's not entirely accurate because there's no man-killing aliens there at the moment. 
Well, we don't know that. I mean, you know, that's 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 science hasn't ruled that out. I suppose you could say that accurately. We can't say definitively. That I'm just tough. talking about. I'm just talking about odds here. I mean, the the odds are this is an alien system with with that is that's hell bent on human destruction. I'm just. It's just the same thing as the moon. Well, really. I, you know, I mean, I suppose that's a that's a, I'd, I'd like to give it the uh, the name theory, but I think even that's giving it a little too much credit. We'll we'll call it a hypothesis for now. It's an interesting hypothesis. We'll test it, I'm sure, over the next few years. But in the meantime, go into the game and check out what the what the game predicted, uh, and they'll have that uh, overwritten through the magic of computers in the next month or so when uh, when the beta goes live. So the next obvious question is: Are they going to stick a Dyson sphere out around that sun that's in the other oh, star right. system with the weird right. light patterns? We should do that. We should we should start a petition. I think they have to figure out what it is first before they decide what to put there. Right. I think I find Dyson spheres quite unrealistic, just simply because of the amount of material that you would have to have to build a Dyson sphere. Well, the the other problem is that the term Dyson sphere has been kind of shanghaied into being a whole bunch of different things. Because traditionally, it's the thing that showed up in Star Trek: The Next Generation, a solid sphere encasing a star. But nowadays, it tends to mean any non-natural construction orbiting a star and taking up at least most of a complete orbit. Sure. I mean, a, a circular cylindrical space habitat is fine, but uh, anything encasing a star is just doesn't make any sense. I've read some that it's more like a cloud. Sure, that makes sense. The more, like a, a ring makes right. sense. There's a bunch of constructs that make more sense than, a, than a, just a solid sphere. Um, one thing, well, this is jumping off the top. We're, I think we're done. I think we milked it. We've, <laughs> we, we, beat it. I think yeah. we beat it to death. I think it's fine. Henry wanted to bring up last week, but we ran out of time. He mentioned that something about it now being possible to scan planets from your ship or something like that. Something about the planetary scanning had altered, is that? Uh, it might be about the ruins. One of the changes that went in, I think it was last week, was they found additional ruins out there from the, for the uh, Guardians species, not the Thargoids, but the Guardians. And Frontier has enabled, through various in-fiction means, for you to scan those up to a thousand light seconds away, whereas the old-fashioned method was you actually had to, like, crawl down to the surface of the planet, you know, fly your ship about three or four clicks above the surface and just fly and just keep your eyes open, you know, the Mark One eyeball. Uh, was how you found these things. But now they've enabled um, sort of long-distance scanning. So if, if you're within a 1,000 light seconds of a planet that has ruins, they'll pop up as a marker on your nav panel. So there's you know, many more sites to explore now. They all seem to cluster around about eight or nine different types. And then each of those have those scannable features, the obelisks on them. So it's kind of opened things up a little bit, you know. It's a little more convenient, you know. People don't have to go to the same place all at the same time, you know. It spreads it out a bit. Well, there was griping that the Guardian's ruin scanning was turning a bit into Oh, a it's grind, terrible. So. It's, it's, it's pretty awful. Uh, Skiffy, we were on late one night, and he had just spent two and a half hours at one site trying all the different combinations of relics you had to carry around. I think he had just topped 50, and he was expecting diminishing returns. Like, you know, he started at a spot and went to the next spot, went to the next spot, and got all the low-hanging fruit and expected that the next site that he'd visit, he would get a lot of duplicates, right? I've already scanned that type or I already got that fragment. So he's expecting a lot of uh, diminishing returns after that. And I haven't heard from him since. Hmm. 
might need to, yeah, he, mm. he might be lost out there. You know, just he might have gone mad trying to finish his uh, 101 different scans. But if you do finish him, it's a hefty bonus. You can get 201 million credits off this mission. So that's impressive. Our Elite Dangerous Community question. Did you visit the TRAPPIST-1 system or CORSIS Sector XU-PA5-0? Anything there worth mentioning? Tell us what you found through our contacts. Keep on listening for details. Hellion, the space survival game we covered recently, has now released as an early access title on Steam. Currently, $25 will get you into early access, which the developer statement says will last approximately one year, and the price may change as new content is added. The game development page doesn't seem to have changed very much from a few weeks ago, so our initial impression of the available content seems to have held. The FAQs and information surrounding the early access have cleared up some other features or lack of features that the early version has. Multiplayer is available, although the FAQ states that the two options for meeting people are flying to their coordinates with a ship and or giving them access to the cryopod on your station. Since ships take some work to get going, granting cryopod access seems to be the easiest option for meeting up with friends at the moment. Planetary landings are also not a feature planned for early access. All of the interactive gameplay is apparently with other players. AI is not planned for early access and may not be featured at release. The dev statement on this is somewhat murky. As for the gameplay itself, there are almost no official game media impressions to glean from as of the time of this recording. And due to Steam's new policy of not accepting reviews from key holders, who are the vast majority of players at this point, there are no Steam reviews either. So all impressions are coming from streamers and general impression posts from various locations. Mostly Reddit. The majority of first impressions seems to be, what am I supposed to be doing? There's no tutorial, prompt, or suggested direction for players provided by the devs. So most of the gameplay features people wandering about their space station and seeing what they can fiddle with. Particularly for videos, this can be hilarious. A fairly common occurrence on many of the videos is people accidentally ejecting themselves into space either because of a glitch or because a player didn't recognize the airlock. The mechanics of controls are fairly intuitive. Few players have issues figuring out how to do basic things like grabbing items, operating controls, moving their avatar, and handling inventory. However, the mechanics of game systems are not as transparent. It's not immediately clear what items in the station are operable, though prompts do appear if a player hovers over. Not all of the items that have an interaction option appear to work, however, the distress call being one example. Also, while there are weapons to grab and equip in the game, they are not yet functional. Reception is split along typical lines. Some people are criticizing the game for a lack of actual gameplay and the direction leaving players floundering when they start. Others are saying that it's supposed to be a survival and exploration game, so there shouldn't be direction or hints to mitigate the difficulty. Time will tell which side the devs end up on. So I've played the game probably a couple hours and I've watched like a day or two of streams on this. And what happens is when you start the game, every player starts with three things. They start with a starting base, which is a, uh, like a survival module. It's got your cryopods and some other stuff in it. There's a basically an airlock that's not attached to your base. And one of your first jobs is to go out and get the airlock attached to your base. Pain in the ass. And the other thing you start with, everybody starts with, is a spaceship. And the spaceship is in disrepair, and the thing you have to do is fix it. And then once you've fixed it, then you can warp around and do FTL travel throughout the system and um, fly over to asteroids and get materials and then turn that into fuel and bring it back to your space station and all sorts of stuff like that. I didn't see anyone using a ship on the streams that I saw. But... Well, it's unless they're actually in the pilot seat, it's hard to tell it's a spaceship. 
<laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the planetary landings thing, that's absolutely true. You can't land on planets yet, and that's actually a feature planned for later. There were some devs on, I think it was Matauchi stream or somebody, and they were talking about a lot of that and said, I know it was Texas Skulls. And that's one of the next thing. There's a couple other bugs that are preventing people from doing things. There's a bunch of changes that are coming to mining and stuff like that. But the, what you have right now will let you build your base up. You get in your spaceship, you go out, you get stuff, you bring it back to your base, and you build onto your base. That's the whole game right now, basically. That, and you go find people and kill them. All right. So what was your opinion of the graphics? They seemed pretty standard fare for early access games, I think. When you're in space and you're floating around, it feels very realistic. Um, you both have this this nice Newtonian field of the physics, and the actual graphics of like the sun on the models is very intense and very stark and lonely, and you're easily blinded if you look toward the sun. Things get in shadow, which have gameplay elements for like the solar power and stuff like that. So I felt the graphics were very well when, in, in those environments. If you look at like the character animations, those are horrible. Like it, it actually is somewhat immersion breaking if you see another player because they, the, there's not really much in terms of like anim animation transitions. But again, early access, it's an indie dev, yada yada. And the planets look absolutely horrible too. So if you look at anything else beyond the hero models of like the space, the space station, the spaceship, you, you're kind of brought out of it a bit. Uh, but if you're looking at those other, if you're looking at like while you're in the space station, spaceship, it looks it looks decent. And just to comment, I guess, on my really early review, so I played the game probably a couple hours. But if you know, like, three or four things before you go in, like, the simple tips of look at monitors to find out if something's broken, because it tells you all the information there, but if you don't know what the monitors mean, then you could potentially start ripping things out of the wall accidentally and dropping key components on the ground, and you can easily break things and just have to start over. Um, it can be extremely frustrating, though. The Halion devs have posted like two videos that kind of show you the basics of putting things together, getting started, getting your ship running and stuff like that. So until they actually get the tutorial and tooltips uh, or the rest of the tooltips in line in the game, I would recommend watching those videos. Well, as you said, it is early access and it's been out for 24 hours at most at this point. So Yeah, it's more like eight hours, but yeah. Our Hellion community question this week is, what do you think of the game now that it's out? Do you think the game's current release date makes sense for early access? Let us know. Contact details coming up after the feedback. Now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendly! So let's just be friendly! Some say he thinks the Trappist system is home to Admiral Akbar, and that he hates Twiglets, and that he's bad and wrong, and who let the Brit write this little bit? But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he'll put together this week's feedback. Recap of last week's community questions. Anything about 2.61 making you happy or sad? What are your impressions of the Spectrum? From Elite Dangerous, was the Commander Creator all that you hoped for? What do you think of multi-crew implementation? Any thoughts on the RPG copyright issue? Silent Hunter writes in and says, Dear Guard Frequency and the Overworked Research Badgers, Not managed to play this in any depth yet, but CIG really need to make their patches smaller. 30 gigs can take several hours even on a 2 megabyte connection. Here, here, here! <laughs> and I can't anymore. He <laughs> <laughs> feels strongly about the subject. I, I couldn't tell. Uh-huh. 30 gigs can take several hours even on a 2 megabit connection, and you can't do anything else while doing the download. Keep up the good work. 
and Shiv responded and said, Use the settings in the launcher to throttle your download to less than your maximum. This lets you browse, etc. while it downloads. It only goes down to 64 kilobits per second, though, so he's not sure Jeff can use the option. No, I've tried it several different ways. Restarting the launcher, setting it to 64-bit, it still downloads at maximum hyperspeed. And for clarification purposes, we need to ensure the audience knows that Shiv also included a winky, sticky-outy face tongue to Jeff on that one, too. Just let the record reflect. So there was some discussion on this at some time that CIG had fixed this problem and and it wasn't necessary to download 30 gigs anymore. Whatever happened to that? No, they they mentioned it recently and they've mentioned it multiple times over the last year that they're working on a differential patcher and I I don't know the blocker is but it just never materializes. Sean Newboy says very informative as always. Which is quite different from his usual feedback, so that should be noted. Thank you, Sean, for spicing it up a bit. Nimrod77 says, I'm the fan that made those flight manuals. Great show, guys. Elite Dangerous, not my thing, but interesting nonetheless. And then there was a smiley face. Nimrod, those were very cool. Yeah, I had them all. They were very, very informative. Very well done. Kudos. Theron Shan writes in and says, Great show. This comment was in reference to the multi-crew in Elite Dangerous and the agent smithing mechanic and its potential issues. We're having a similar discussion on the RSI forums, and my comment fits both discussions. Note, editing may be necessary to reflect ED lore where appropriate. Could we not just ask to implement some system of penalties to both the captain of the vessel with the NPCs and the individual who's agent smithing? They do not need to be anything crazy. So here's his first suggestion. Captain would not be able to use any sort of insurance system, if CIG implements one, for NPCs killed via agent smithing. So if your buddy kills your NPC while using him, then he's gone for good. All right, well, his next suggestion is any player operating as agent smith would not be able to earn money from activities performed while acting that way. Physical loot or purchased can be shared with the actual player as long as the player travels to the location to get them. All right, so number three, if a player dies acting as agent smith, he'll insure a set of penalties. These penalties and others like them could be based uh, on time, so that even if it was your third Agent Smith death, but it's been a long time since your previous Agent Smith death, it might be treated as your first. So basically a timer reset. So, you know, it, it would encourage people to not, you know, to, to try to play hard, you know, to not try to go in and sabotage. And finally, captains of NPCs that are killed by Agent Smith's PCs would have a slightly higher penalty to reputation if the NPC died under its own control. So, for example, if the penalty to reputation, not necessarily for, like, monetary, from some guild would normally be, you know, like a minus 500 hit. If it's being controlled by an Agent Smith, the penalty would be slightly different. So, given the first two points, other than you being my best friend in the whole wide world, why in the heck would I bother? Exactly. I mean, there has to be a, there has to be a reward system. Elite's basically saying that you're on the crew. You're temporarily on the crew. But if, if the, and the loot, quote, looting system isn't a thing in Elite Dangerous, but if it's going to be a thing in Star Citizen, you'd have to have some way to reward the person that Agent Smithed in with something that represents the loot somehow. A friend called Phi writes in and says, hey, I just got through listening to it and I heard I got a name check. Yay! Good show as always, guys. Hey, have another name check. And Zombie Gunslinger contributed, My pledge I bought for Star Citizen comes with a Jane-style manual, or so it says. As for the organization question, I think organizations need to be limited in size. Giving it too much power can and does change the power balance of the game. Also, didn't they 
also say there's an organization council for litigation, so a guild leader can't take all the money and assets and run off. That was a stretch that goal. That was, yeah, that was a stretch goal. For Star Citizen in particular, the instancing limits that they are going to have in the end game. Yeah, that's gonna. It really brings down the power of organizations as a whole, right? Because you, until they've yeah. sorted that stuff out anyway, you know, keeping your guys together, it, it's it's hard to, harder to make an overwhelming force like you could in say something like uh, Eve Online, where you can bring thousands of people into a system from the same organization. So. We'll see how it works out in the end, but I, I don't expect it to be as big of a big of a force as it, it is. No, not even close. I mean, even with Elite Dangerous, it's it's not. It, you can you can harm individual people and ruin individual people's days, but then they'll just go to a, a PVE instance or into solo play. So I mean, it's 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 the kind of thing where I think on paper it's a big concern, but as the system gets built out, it's just not a big deal. And our new patrons this week are none I'm so sad patches are mailed all should have been sent so if you owed one and don't get it in the next week or two let us know I have a brief announcement if you wouldn't mind an interruption Jeff I wouldn't mind an interruption Tony go right ahead card frequency patch 2.0 uh, is at the uh, uh, embroidery shop right now so uh, I'm getting final uh, uh, artistic um, proofs on that in the next week or so. So we may have a brand new patch to share with everybody uh, for those of you interested in, in patroning. Did Sean take a look at those? Uh, yeah, he they, Yes, actually, uh, I appointed Sean as our customer service representative to the customer service representative. Oh, okay, good. Wait, would you call these patches artisanal? They are artisanal patches, for sure. Uh, uh, ben Sanders uh, worked diligently and, and hard for literally minutes. I mean, just, I mean, it, it, it was literally minutes of, of, of sweat and tears and labor, uh, and uh, with me yelling at him the whole time. Uh, to get these uh, put together. Well, I can't. I can't wait to get my new patches. So, how would one go go about downloading such a patch? Downloading such a patch. One does not download such a patch. One contributes via Patreon, and then Shiv, the amazing community manager, through the ancient art of mail, <gasps> which I'm sure you've heard of. The mail system, yes, a letter carrier type physical conveyance delivers it so that even people like jeff with crappy internet connections can get this service so uh so look look forward to that we'll reveal once once i get the final proofs you know they have to get it sized right and get the right color thread picked out once we've got the proofs uh, set up all uh, all shall be revealed for guard frequency patch 2.0 and this week's community questions what do you think of spectrum do you think the hurricane can do what sig claims did you visit the Trappist-1 system, or Corsis Sector XU-PA5-0 in Elite? Anything there worth mentioning? And what do you think of Hellion now that it's out? Do you think the game's current release state makes sense for early access? You've heard our thoughts, so we want to hear yours. Drop us an email, a tweet, or a comment on our show's post, which you can find on our website and over on our Facebook page. So how was the show? Is it at the right stage of development, or do we need to refine our release schedules to suit the market? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on the show's post over at GuardFrequency.com? Or hit us up on Twitter, at GuardFreak, or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. 
And that brings us to the end of episode 157 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 158 on March 7th, so be sure to keep an eye out for our shows over at GuardFrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything on Friday nights, then you can always join us live over at guardfrequency.com forward slash live. We start recording around 10 p.m. Central, which is also Fridays at 7 a.m. in Kushino, Russia, the birthplace of Yuri Gargarin. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email over at squawk at guardfrequency.com. And you can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber for just a buck twenty-five a week. You'll get an access to the raw recordings of our live shows, some guard frequency goodies, and an invitation to our elite, dangerous flight group. We want to thank all of our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and hope that you'll consider making a regular contribution. Because the more support we can get, the better show we can make. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you join us. Check out our website and look under the call signs section for details on how to comply with us. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek from the TV series, the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. We'd like to thank our sister production for providing us this week's interview. Be sure to check them out at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lowmaster, our artist, Ben Sanders, and Simon Cholton Edwards, our staff writer, Jace Pentad, and of course, our audio engineer, Mikey. Thanks to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit ronaldjenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty low. Reduce thrust. This is Ken Shadow, Intro Sync 3. This is Tony. Tony interesting for, but never mind. I guess I don't need to, do I? I'll just, I'll just quit. No, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll say hi when you say in the, in the booth. Then I'll, then I'll stop. Okay, that was the longest sync ever. <laughs> Intro in three, two. Tony, you have something. It's my stupid cat, and I, sh- I shut her out of the, I, I shut her out of the room, and she's at the door. Hang on, let me bring her in here. Hi, cat. Yeah, run away off to the corner and shut up. Uh. She was fine before. She was fine before, <laughs> and then she started making noise while you guys were doing the last uh, news segment. So I picked her up and tossed her out. Now, Jeff, since you you insisted on the order, you can read this next one. Oh, thanks. I I, I just I was just following <laughs> this. Wow, man, God, <laughs> who did pick on Who's me? in charge of the editing on this one? Shiv says Dad. he was tired. Oh. I mean, we here we will take anybody here at guard frequency, and no, we won't. <laughs> policy send policy your, my friend send us you're uh, tired you're hungry uh, 
Now, well, I, I I'm think... trying to build the organization up, Tony. Shush. We're not taking pirate <laughs> scum like this Kin Shadow guy over here. He's got oh, nefarious. Okay, okay. He's got nefarious motivations. He's 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 outside the lines. Yeah, he'll have to take my friend over here, kind of Shadow. I still have kind to hire Shadow. A, That's right. I that guy's all right. He's cool. HR director yet? So just you know, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> it's a good it's a good meatloaf reference. <laughs>